Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Teens Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode's guest is Dr. Gregory Half. Greg is an associate professor and course coordinator for strength and conditioning within the School of Medicine and Health at Edith Cannon University. Dr. Half was previously on the podcast back on episode 99, but the audio for that episode was absolutely dreadful. So I really wanted to have him back on the show so we could have a show with much, much better audio quality. Greg is also the current president of the National Strength and Condition Association, the NSCA. Dr. Half is one of the top published sports scientists in modern times and has recently co-edited the fourth edition of the NSCA's Essentials of Strength and Conditioning and also co-authored, along with Tudor Bomper, the fifth edition of Periodization, which is a fantastic book that I read back in 2015. On this episode, Greg and I discuss many topics. We discuss what Greg sees as the holy grail in periodization, training residuals. We discussed uh, fatigue and trying to understand what fatigue is. And we also discussed training compatibility of alactic aerobic qualities and the interference effect, as well as many more topics throughout the show. It was a really great show, guys, and I hope you really enjoy it. Okay, Dr. Gregory Half, it's an absolute pleasure to have you come back on to the podcast. I uh, really appreciate you making the time. Maybe just for the, the listeners who aren't too familiar with who you are, which I would imagine won't be too many people, just maybe give us a, a little fill-in on your background. Um, currently, I'm the, an associate professor of exercise and sports science, specializing in strength and conditioning at Edith Cowan University. Um, I did my master's degree under Professor Mike Stone. I did my PhD at the University of Kansas. Um, I've been at Edith Cowan now for about seven years, and I do research related to strength, power training, and uh, things related to performance. Great stuff. So, as I said to you through our recent emails, um, an area that I'm finding very interesting lately is the whole concept of fatigue. And I know you've you've written extensively in the past on stimulus and fatigue, recovery adaptation, and the fitness fatigue factor, and then also training residuals. Could you maybe get into your thoughts on those areas currently? Well, I think you know, if, we, if we look at delayed training effects and residual training Effects. I think this is one area that is probably not investigated enough in the scientific literature. Uh, I mean, Aniga Majika and the guys that look at tapering have looked at it from a tapering perspective. And, mm. um, and there's been some work done uh, with Jan Lamour's group over in France looking at you know, overreaching and things of that nature. But I think this is one of those areas that's probably under-researched. And um, you know, we can make some conclusions based on the literature that's out there. But the issue that we get into is that... Um, you know, as Dr. Stone would always say, is that each individual may respond slightly different depending on their genetic potential. And, you know, some people recover faster than others. Some people can handle higher training loads than others. And so fundamentally what we're looking at is that we have a training stimulus that creates some sort of overload uh, to the individual's physiology. And then they have to adapt to that in order to maximize or supercompensate performance. And the trick is, from a training perspective, is to give uh, training programs that uh, facilitate either uh, creating a stimulus to create adaptation or to remove a stimulus or, or, or add a process to enhance recovery uh, in a timely fashion. 
And so this is where that, for me, periodization becomes a really big part of the concept. Mm. Um, now, can we 100% say that uh, we can predict uh, someone with 100% assurity that they'll be recovered at a certain time point? No. Um, but I think with the emerging technologies that we have, we are getting better at tracking and monitoring um, athletes uh, as they recover or uh, receive stimulus. But my concern recently has become that I think we're almost over-monitoring and we're not preparing athletes to prepare uh, to perform when they're slightly fatigued or under stress um, because we can't move the competition day per se. Um, so from a fatigue fitness standpoint, I think the other thing we have to think about is that when we look at the literature or we look at periodization literature, a lot of times people present it as a unifactorial factorial model. We look back at Vladimir Zatsiorsky's original picture in the 1994 book that he wrote um, from Human Kinetics. He, he depicted it as pretty much one factorial. So we have fatigue, we have fitness, and we have a performance capacity. But the reality is that with a team sport athlete, for example, we may have several performance capacities that are recovering at different rates. And, and I think for me, if I was going to say what is the holy grail of, of research for sports science, really trying to predict or or model how people respond to a training stimulus might yeah. be that that magic thing that we're still we're still chasing. Uh, what what certain objective means do, do you think have good validity to, to help us establish if, if someone is in a state of readiness to train? So, you know, you see things like obviously HRV, um, and then maybe even velocity-based training to a certain degree. And I know some people use reactive strength indexes maybe to look more at neural fatigue and stuff like that. But is there any certain technologies that are around or that that are that are in the works that you think could potentially help coaches decide where an athlete is at on any given moment in terms of their readiness and, and therefore help us to establish maybe certain timelines with regards to developing certain physical qualities and, and training residuals with individual athletes? Oh, that's a, that's the, the million-dollar question, I think. And there's so many different sensors and different monitoring tools out there. And I think the balancing act becomes uh, what is time-efficient, minimally invasive, yeah. and most um, prescriptive or most descriptive of where the athlete is. I mean, uh, Marco Cardinal from, from Aspire uh, recently had a paper in the International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance. They had a special... Uh, issue come out actually yesterday um, looking at um, monitoring. The whole entire issue is monitoring and it's got tons of wonderful manuscripts in there. Marco actually uh, wrote a wrote a, a paper with uh, Barley on wearable training monitoring technologies, applications, challenges and opportunities. It's a, it's a wonderful paper. I think almost every sports scientist slash strength coach should probably read this paper. And he talks about all the different ways that you can monitor things. And I I think the problem that we get into is, is are we over-reliant on technology? So, for example, does heart rate variability work? You know, people question it. I mean, I know I've had conversation with Niga Mujica, and he hasn't been 100% sold on it. Mm. Um, you know, I don't work in that sphere. Uh, it's not something I, I've spent a lot of time with, but, I, you know, his argument was pretty compelling. Um, if we look at the velocity-based monitoring, um, you know, it's an interesting concept. I mean, our lab has done some recent work, uh, my doctoral student, Harry Banyard, um, where we looked at, um, could we predict the daily 1RM? There was a, Maladin Chavanek had presented this concept of 
you know, maybe the warm-up sets could be used to predict the daily training max, and then you could back calculate your training zones and things of that nature. And so we really wanted to question that 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 process, and, and we designed a pretty nice little study where we took athletes in the non-fatigue state, which because if we can predict it in a non-fatigue state, we should be able to predict it in a fatigue state. And we had them max out on Friday, uh, get their 1RM, so we know what the 1RM, their maximal capacity is, come back on Monday, and now that we know what their 1RM is, we can prescribe the percentages up to 1RM and see what the 1RM would be. And we could measure the velocity on all our attempts, and we could repeat that Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And what we found was that it wasn't really predictive. It over-predicted um, your maximal capacity. Uh, yet, your 1RM was in this tight band of about 5 to 8% across the training week, which, lo and behold, is, is very similar to the findings of, of Professor Mike Stone from the early uh, late 70s, early 80s, where he found that same variance in strength. So for us, we're not so 100% sure that the velocity uh, method is the best method at this point to kind of track training intensity and um, resistance training. Um, I know people are starting to use models where, okay, we're going to, we have a study that's almost completed at looking at this, where we're going to do as many reps as we can until the velocity goes to some critical threshold, um, or we're going to train in velocity bands. And, and the question that I often ask is, does that change the concept of periodization in the sense that if I'm trying to do a training stimulus to produce hypertrophy, that's a very different repetition scheme than what I would do for power or strength. And how do I do that with the velocity-based methods? Um, one of the other challenges, I think, with the velocity-based work is that uh, fundamentally a lot of the studies that have been doing this have been done in a Smith machine. And, and while I'm not questioning the methodological uh, benefit of using a Smith machine. What I would question is the ecological or actual training translation of that data. So one of the things that's interesting about our study that we did, we did it in a freeway environment. And, you know, we used the squat, which is, you know, one of the most common exercises in strength and conditioning. Um, so with the Smith machine, what happens is you only have a vertical plane movement pattern, and they often do it with a linear encoder or a, a linear position transducer. Mm -hmm. So they can't account for horizontal movement, but then what people try to do is translate those velocity measures that come from the Smith machine to a free weight environment. And, and there's some real challenges with that. I'm not so sure that those are transferable, because the other confounder that we see in that literature is often, in order to improve reliability, um, what's been done in those studies is they put a pause between the eccentric and concentric phase. Again, changing the way the actual exercise is performed. I'm not so sure that has the same translation as engaging the stretch shortening cycle. Um, our study did engage the stretch shortening cycle. So do I think velocity has a place? Yeah. I think, however, I, we might be going too far with it. Um, I'm not sure of its actual place as far as a tool for guiding training on a daily basis. We're still chewing on that question and, and debating it and, and trying to figure it out in our lab. And, and, you know, we've talked with Brian Mann and Professor Stone and several others about this. And, I mean, we have some wonderful work that, you know, Amador Ramos from Spain and I have been doing some good things in, in the velocity area. Um, but where does it fit in the training paradigm? Is it the cure-all or the answer? I, I probably don't think so. Um, fundamentally, if we think about this concept of the optimal load, which was very popular in the 90s, um, early 2000s, um, really, you know, Professor Stone and I had this conversation at the UKSCA last year, and 
you know, we were talking about velocity training. I was showing him some of our work, and he, he made a comment that really resonated with me about how um, velocity training today is just a rehash of power training of the old. Power training fundamentally was high-velocity training. And so his comment was, it didn't work then. Why is it going to work now? And, and that was a really interesting comment to me. Um, now, I'm not saying that the research isn't showing some promising things. It's just how we employ it might be different. So velocity, not sure if it's the best monitoring tool at this point. Um, you know, things that I think probably are, are valid and, and work quite well. Um, there's some really good data out there on sleep monitoring, you know, monitoring sleep, sleep status, things like that, and relating that to potential injury. Um, the other one that's probably the most popular and probably the easiest that people use is session RPE. Um, I will admit that uh, in our lab group, we struggle with the session RPE concept in the strength and conditioning environment. Um, mainly because some work from Jeff McBride's lab actually says it's not really very descriptive of intensity, um, and Jeff does some really good work. So um, I'm not sure if that's the best tool um, out there, but it may be the best of what we have available. Um, so those are some of the ones. Obviously, we use GPS extensively in team sports, especially uh, field-based sports. Um, you know, there are some people that are starting to go into, you know, sweat uh, sensors and things of that nature. Um, uh, we used to do urine analysis for um, hydration status at the USOC when we did our projects there. I mean, there's just so much technology right now. I don't know if we're we're sure of what the best tools are because I don't think enough validation studies have been done to see if some of these uh, devices are valid and reliable. Um, you know, sometimes when we we test the device, we find that it's completely unreliable, and and then. Are you measuring a change or are you measuring an error? So I, I think we have to be careful with technology, and I think we need to be more robust when we start to, to look at it. I think, you know, a new tool comes out, people automatically um, uh, gravitate to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's some good points brought up there. With, with, with the auto-regulation, uh, you said that you've been kind of trying to do more like session RP. Have you utilized it in any way with like, say, a main movement within your session, kind of like Mike Tashir, you know, the powerlifter, he would prescribe RPEs more yeah. so. Yeah, oh, it's a, you know, for us, the auto-regulation, we did a pilot study last year with rugby players, and okay. we found it to be complete rubbish. Um, I mean, I hate to be that blunt. Um, okay. We didn't get a critical end to actually publish, but the pilot work actually, the group that auto-regulated didn't really have much performance gain, and um, the group that didn't, and we actually gave them percentage-based training with percentage ranges in the classic way, actually had significant improvements in, in change of direction, sprinting, and, and loaded vertical jumps. Uh, but the group that auto-regulated tended to either overtrain or undertrain. We kind of coined the terminology princesses versus warriors. <laughs> uh, we had some that never pushed hard, and we had some that pushed themselves to breaking. And um, we had our, our original goal, and it's been frustrating for us. We just haven't been able to get the subjects that the numbers that we want here in Western Australia. Um, our sports psychologists actually thought there was personality traits that might predispose people to either maybe beneficial aspects of autoregulation or more beneficial of um, actual uh, prescriptive uh, load uh, trainings. Um, now, I mean, as a coach, you know, we've tried to let athletes do RPE personally. And to be honest, I, I don't think many athletes have the capacity to do it. Um, and I know it's very popular in powerlifting, and I know, for example, the ASCA, Australian Strength Conditioning Association, does teach it in their courses. My personal experience is that um, 
some athletes are going to grind themselves into the ground and some athletes aren't going to train hard enough. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny you brought that up because I, I only uh, had an interview with Mike Tashir last Wednesday and we kind of touched on that, that probably RPE does work well with powerlifters because usually powerlifters are fairly intrinsically motivated individuals because it's an individual sport where when you kind of maybe try and apply that to a team-based setting, like I think any team-based strength and conditioning coach will tell you you're going to have your guys that will, as you said, you know, they'll, they'll train themselves into the ground. Then at the other end of that spectrum, you have guys who like, they just need to be literally, you know, it's like you can bring the horse to, the horse to water and you, sometimes you have to force the horse's head into the water. And then you got your, any of your guys then in between there in the middle. So it probably doesn't, doesn't work as well or be maybe in that team-based setting because you have such a spectrum of personalities where you get guys that need to be forced to do some work and some guys need to be tapered back. Whereas it might work better in some of those individualized sports like powerlifting or even weightlifting. So it, it's very uh, it's a very good point to, to bring up for sure. I don't think it would work in weightlifting. I mean, because of the technical skill, mm, mm. I just, I, I just don't. Um, my experience in weightlifting, guys that auto-regulate, we can't get them to peak at the right time. Yeah. Fundamentally, for us in weightlifting, you know, it doesn't matter what you do in training per se; it's what you do in competition. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah. And you know, there's a couple athletes that I've worked with that have tried to auto-regulate, and they just can't hit consistently high competitive totals when they need it. Yeah. Um, you know, they may be amazing in the gym, but then they go to the competition and they're rubbish. And then a week later, they're amazing again. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, it's hard to drive that performance gain in a, in a, in a way that's systematic if you're letting people move themselves up and down by how they feel. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, fundamentally, if you think about it from a training perspective, during certain overreaching phases, you're supposed to feel like rubbish. And that's yeah. the point. Yeah. You're supposed to be stressing the physiology. I think a good analogy is, when you when you try to make a sword and you try to make steel into a sword, you stick it into the fire, you, p- you pull it out, you pound on it, you put it in the cold water. You stick it back in the fire, you pull it out. Training is very similar to that. We push you very hard at certain times to stimulate physiological adaptations, and then we pull you back and we let you recover. I think when you start getting into autoregulation, is, is unless you're very in tune with your body, and I would suggest that only super athletes who've been in it a very long time um, and have really good awareness of their, of their, of their physiology or their, or their movement or their sport. Powerlifter seems to do okay with it, but I'm not so sure that's always the case. Um, I just don't think people are, are, are good enough to, to know when they're ready and when they're not ready. And, and, you know, I mean, for example, like this morning I, I was, I trained this morning and I was like, I don't know if I want to do, you know, go too heavy today. And, you know, my program had a certain thing on it. And I, you know, I did my program and I, I sailed through it. But if you had asked me in the morning, you know, what do you think I should do today? I probably wouldn't have done what I did. Yeah. So I, I think that's part of the problem that we have uh, with that model. But the other thing, I, you know, one of the things I'm very cognizant of in, in sport, especially team sports, you know, if we look at a red light, yellow light, green light, or stoplight system for, you know, monitoring, if, we're in a team sport. We have competitions that are predetermined by our, our leagues or our conferences or, or by our sport, basically. We're not always going to be optimal at every one of those time points. So the question I ask is, if we're always trying to optimize or be maximizing our readiness to train, when do we practice actually performing when we're under stress? When we may not be perfect for that game day. 
but we still have to perform and we still have to get through the rounds in order to get to the next level. Mm-hmm. So from my perspective, I'm not so sure that it's always best to perf- to do readiness to train kind of concepts. Yeah, no, I mean, it makes good sense. And uh, I, I definitely heard those uh, points brought up before. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely good stuff to put out there and have people think on and meditate on for sure. Um, just in, in terms of training residuals, uh, Dr. Half, I've, I've seen, like, obviously, Ishran's probably one of the most cited authors when it comes to training residuals. And in his work, he, he says that maximal strength and aerobic um, properties have very long training residuals in comparison to um, some glycolytic properties and then some uh, strength endurance and alactic qualities. But I've often heard people say that, like, I, I know I remember speaking to Dr. Mike Young, and I've heard other people who say that aerobic qualities decay faster than anaerobic qualities, which would then would be a contradiction to Dr. Ishran's work. So just in, in terms of uh, your work with residuals, like, what have you seen to be the trend with certain residuals? You know, so with Ishran, he'd say that strength and aerobic stay around a lot longer than more anaerobic lactic and, a- and anaerobic alactic qualities. What have you seen there? And obviously I know there's going to be variability built into that in terms of an individual, but is there a certain, is, is there a certain trend there that, that, that certain qualities do stick around longer than others that you'll usually see with most people? Well, you know, if I look at it from a strength perspective, my experience is kind of a little bit different than Isserin's block model. I, I don't think you can maintain strength for a month if you remove the stimulus completely. And, and yeah. we can look back at Kale Hakkinen's work. And if people haven't read Kale Hakkinen's work from the 80s, you need to because it's seminal. Mm-hmm. You look at you know the decay rate of, of maximal force and the rate of force development in a four-week period, it's massive. It's absolutely colossal. Okay. And in fact, in a two-week perspective, it can be as much as 20 to 30%. So um, for me, I think the question you have to ask yourself is uh, strength uh, able to be maintained at a level with a minimal stimulus yeah. versus a complete removal? Mm-hmm. And, and that's the one thing that's not 100% clear in Isserin's, in, in his work. Yeah. You know, he does have some variable block models where you actually reintroduce things. Yeah. You know, reintroduce accumulation, reintroduce things for small mini blocks. Yeah. So... For me, I, I'm not 100% sold on the fact that, you know, I get I do all this strength training for a month and then I take a month off of no strength training. Um, I think that's problematic. Um, now, could I say that I have a block where I have, you know, four weeks and I have 12 strength sessions and then the next block I have four weeks and only eight strength sessions or six? That might work from a maintenance perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not stimulating more strength gain, but you're you're slowing the decline. And and Kale Hackman had some work on you know the minimal stimulus necessary to maintain strength and extend that. Um, so for me, I'm not so 100% sure that uh, Isern's correct on this residual for four weeks with strength. And I would argue with people that would suggest that strength stays around a lot longer. I think you have to define what strong is. Then I mean. Um, I know in, in weightlifters, you know, a week off and, and, and they lose a lot uh, of their capacity to lift heavy things. Yeah, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. And, and anything there maybe on the aerobic residuals? Because I, I, I've often heard people conflict in that too. Like they say aerobic detrains quick and then other people say no, aerobic sticks around quite long, a lot longer than, than anaerobic capabilities. Have you seen anything on that? 
Well, I mean, if you look at the literature, I mean, there's some stuff on detraining that's pretty... Uh, it, it, again, the question becomes, are we talking complete detraining where you stop doing it or are you just mm-hmm. reducing your training load? You know, from a periodization perspective, very rarely do we remove things completely. Yeah, exactly. Um, for example, you know, I may not be doing as much of a certain kind of aerobic or conditioning activity with my team sport, but it doesn't mean other things I'm doing doesn't have an impact on the aerobic system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that I often think about as well as the integration of the training factors and how they impact the physiology. Of course, we see changes in, in the physiology that can hurt, occur pretty quickly that underpin aerobic capacity. I mean, changes in uh, blood chemistry, changes in mitochondrial properties and things of that nature can all be impacted by a period of detraining. I think the question really becomes, are are we talking detraining or are we talking training reallocation or are we talking reduced training? Mm. Um, that changes the paradigm of the discussion. Yeah. Um, the complete removal of factors is, is an interesting one. And, you know, if we look back at, you know, Verkashansky's, you know, conjugate model where you do one training factor, you remove it completely and you go to another one and then you remove it completely and go to another one. Um, it does have some merit for certain sports, but the, the reality becomes, um, I believe that you probably still need to do some sort of training underneath that to maintain those characteristics. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we we uh, we, we, we 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 sort of spoke about that last time, and that, and I, yeah. I I think I think it's in is it, I'm not really sure it's in in something you, if it's in the periodization book with Bampo or if it's in one of your book chapters in a, in a book you've contributed where you showed like you know, true block training at one end of the continuum and then true concurrent training at the other end. And you were saying we probably need to be somewhere in the middle here where we're always emphasizing a certain quality and we're retaining other qualities at the same time. Well, I think, yeah, I think that's, it depends on the sport, really, I think, a lot of times. Mm -hmm. You know, I think what we're looking at, you know, what people might call emphasis or pendulum models of periodization. And and really, for me, what, what we're playing with right now is this idea that, we need to find a hybrid between the, the pure block model or the pure sequential model mm-hmm. and the pure parallel model. Yeah. You know, there's certain aspects that need to be done parallel and certain aspects that need to be sequenced. Now, it depends on the sport and it depends on what we're working with. Yeah. Um, you know, if I was working with sprinters and, and it, you don't want these sharp changes in um, training factors because you get system st- stiffness. You want to have some more of a, a smooth transition, mm-hmm. um, and that system stiffness could relate to hamstring injuries and things of that nature. So, um, I mean, if you look at the classic work in strength training by, by by Mike Stone and Harold O'Brien and John Garhammer, I mean, if you look at their original periodization model, it was a smooth transition model because they used downsets. Um, so really, it was a smooth block model. It wasn't really linear. It was a block model. Um, you know, and, and, and a lot of people forget that because they actually haven't read those papers. I mean, they look at them, but they haven't really read the dissertation and stuff that goes with it. Yeah, yeah. I I know on the last podcast we we did speak about periodization, but the as as I said to you after that podcast, one disappointing thing about our podcast was the audio was just not great, just due to old yeah. old laptop and stuff like that. So I wouldn't mind maybe just recovering some some of the things we spoke about there because the information was just so so good. Um. In in terms of, of periodization, I mean that's kind of one area that you're really known to be an expert in, and um and we we did speak about this last time too about kind of 
John Kiley's sort of um, articles on periodization, and I, I think yeah. dude, I think dude, there's there's a bit of misinterpretation. Like uh, I think because I've spoken to John too, and it's not like John says you, you completely throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think he was just saying that a lot of us assume that there's a lot a lot of science to back up periodization, and he's he's like there actually isn't that much, but like you'd never say you go somewhere without a plan or have a generalized. I don't, plan. I don't know if I agree with him on that one. Yeah. So I, mean, I, I, I did, did, look at modern so, science. He's yeah. looking now. Yeah. If we go back in time, I mean, you cannot discount the research that Bondarchuk did in the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. You can't discount the work that you know was done by Isserin when he was in, in the Soviet Union. You, yeah. you know, we have this tendency, and, and Stone and I were talking about this last week, that if it's not modern, it's not good. Yeah, and yeah. I, I'm not so sure I agree with that because if that was the case, then we could throw Henneman's size principle out the window because it was published in the 1950s. Um, you know, right now the big, big scientific discussion is on, you know, is getting strong just specificity, and you just, you know, you can lift light loads and then once in a while lift heavy. Mm-hmm. Rausch and Morehouse did that same work in 1957. It's not new. Mm-hmm. Um, so just because it's old doesn't mean it's bad. Now the problem is with the Soviet Union research is that. It wasn't published in a format like we're used to, which is very detailed methodologically and things of that nature. It doesn't mean it's bad research. And you know, Professor Stone will give you a, he can give you a dissertation on why it's not bad research. So for me, I'm not so sure it's not as researched as we think. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not researched the way we do it now, but it was researched quite heavily. Um, but for me. When I look at periodization, I think we can evolve periodization. And, yeah. and, and if you think about it, right, you know, if we look at J.B. Morin's work, right, and right now he's doing some really interesting things, um, looking at the force velocity profile and determining force deficit versus velocity deficit. Very interesting work. Now, the question becomes, if we look at periodization in a hierarchical structure, periodization basically contains two factors, really. It's programming and planning. So periodization composes those two things. Periodization is not Moses with the tablets coming down off the mountain carved in stone. Yeah, yeah. We have to design a, a, con- a construct in order to get someone from A to B. How we actually get them from A to B is actually going to be programming. Mm-hmm. Planning is the roadmap that we're going to follow. Programming is what we're actually going to do. So we've got a, we have a schedule for the year that we have to go to, through in a sport. If we're trying to get to the Olympics, we have certain things we have to do over a four-year cycle. But you know what we do each day is dependent on what we're trying to program for. And what I find interesting about J.B. Morin's work is that could we use his work as a tool for determining the percentage contribution of the emphasis in the emphasis model? By doing that, what we do is we adapt our programming structures but don't change our focus. So if I focus is on strength and power, and I have someone who's force dominant or def, uh, dominant and velocity deficit, my ratio of dominant force activities to velocity activities might be different. But my periodization goal is still strength and power. Does that make sense? Yeah, abs- absolutely. Um, I'm just pulling up uh, this book, Strength and Conditioning for Sports Performance, and you, you know, you. Uh, you wrote an excellent chapter on periodization. And just one thing before we move on is, um, I thought you gave a very, very eloquent definition of periodization. So maybe could you just get get into that just briefly? Like, why why did you go with that definition that you gave for periodization, which, which I thought was very good. 
<laughs> I have to remember which one that is. I've written a few, and it's changed over the years. Um, generally, for me, with periodization, a couple things that I always include in definitions, and one is is that we have it's a systematic, uh, integrative approach. You know, so we have to be systematic yet integrative, and, and we're really looking at how do we uh, take training factors and and and. And it's all training factors have to be integrated, and it's not mm-hmm. just about strength, and it's not just about power, and it's not just about speed. And so, what we're trying to do is create some sort of logical, systematic, integrative properties of these factors in a training program. And I think, um, from my perspective, I think you know we can design a training program that makes no sense, but we have to use science to make some decisions. And and this is where I think monitoring may have its place is how do we find, how do you use monitoring to make decisions that keep us in the construct of where we're trying to go? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we know, for example, in the Olympics, we, we have to perform on a certain time. And we usually, with a lot of sports, we kind of know the benchmark that we need. You know, in track cycling, we can kind of predict, you know, what speed we need to ride at. You know, and I think that's the that's something that, you know, we can then look at what factors contribute to that and then say, okay, we need to accomplish this by this, and we need to have this factor in order to do this. But I think where it gets a little bit more interesting is, how do we get that? And that becomes programming. And I think people get locked into programming. And I think when we look at periodization, we have to look at the idea that when we create our definition of periodization, it's not just training variation. Because training variation is a part of the concept, but that's not all it is. And to me... I think that's where sometimes we get a little bit awry in the sense that we we think of it as just one thing. And for me, I think it's a little bit more complex than that. And it's about how do we look at the bigger picture of what training is and what periodization is and how do we get someone from A to B? Mm-hmm. Now, I think one of the things that we have to always center on is what are what is our goal of what we're trying to accomplish? And And really, that's the biggest thing. And I and I think that's where people kind of struggle a little bit, and and one of the things is is that you're you're looking at periodization. It's not just the training factors as far as you know strength, power, speed, endurance. It's also things like you know training frequency. You can manipulate training frequency in a training program to change the adaptation of responses. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think one of the forgotten uh, tools in training is is training frequency. You know, and 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 training density and things yeah. of that nature, but also I think when people think about periodization, they forget about one big thing: is training focus. You know, for example, if I'm in a phase of the general prep period and I'm trying to increase muscle mass, well, that's my main goal, and I probably shouldn't be overly concerned with reductions in uh, power at that point because that's not my goal, mm-hmm. and, and we're trying to get hypertrophy. So the training foci becomes a big part of that definition as well. And and I think one of the things that you have to look at is that periodization, conceptually, we have periods of training that are dependent upon one, one another. You know, one of the conversations that, you know, you know, I speak with Professor Stone all the time, and one of the things we talk about a lot is this idea of, for example, people have forgotten that there's a sequence to training and that Sometimes in research, if I compare two training modalities on one time point, they may be equal. But what happens after the next time point? They may not be equal. And I think one of the best studies that I've ever seen done on this is is the Harris study that was done at Appalachian State.
State in the late 90s, early 2000s, where they looked at American football players and they looked at sequential training and they found that a mixed method actually produced the greatest responses. And from my perspective, I think that's part of this whole definition as well, is how do these training factors go together? Is it intelligently designed? Is it integrated and sequenced appropriately? And how are the training factors manipulated? And, and I think that's where the science gets kind of interesting, is that trying to determine how we actually manipulate those training factors is where I think a lot of people are really interested. And I think one of the things, I, you know, I really like what J.B. Marin's doing right now with this force velocity profiling. Um, I might do it slightly different in how I create the force velocity profile, but I like the concept of trying to figure out what the deficiency is uh, related to a certain performance. And I think that's that's interesting, and and that could underpin how we make decisions for periodization. Yeah, great stuff. Uh, and the definition, the the one here was um, the one you went for. Therefore, for this book chapter, your periodization is defined as the logical integration and sequencing of training factors uh, into mutually dependent periods of time designed to optimize specific physiological and performance outcomes at predetermined time points. I thought that was very good because the, the definition I used to give was uh, um, it's the manipulation of different training variables to achieve a, cer a certain desired outcome in a certain period of time. But then you added in this logical sequencing bit, which I thought was a very, very important piece. So I put that into my definition now. And maybe if you can maybe touch on this idea of phase potentiation and, and the logical sequencing of training and that you know, preceding blocks really should be uh, or should serve as a foundation for succeeding blocks. Well, I think so. And I think if you think about it, this idea of phase potentiation is just another way of talking about training residuals in a way. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, obviously the Harris study was a great applied study that was done in the laboratory that uh, the laboratory of a Division One college football program. And these were real athletes. These were, you know, often, you know, good college athletes at, at that level. So it, it, that was a great study that actually looks at that idea of phase potentiation. But, you know, the, one of the interesting papers that was published in, in the European Journal of Applied Physiology is a paper by Zimpero and Minetti that looks at this idea of mathematical modeling of training factor outcome for power. And this study was really interesting because what they showed is that if we can induce some sort of change in the cross-sectional area, change in the skeletal muscle, um, either architectural, you know, to the actual myofibril. If we do that first, and then we go and do some sort of training that changes the neural activation, fundamentally, if you think about it from a real simplistic standpoint, learning how to use the muscle you just built. Mm -hmm. And we, we work on that neural component, and then we work on the power component. So one of the things that is interesting is if you look at the classic model of strength development, which is often falsely called the linear model, which it is far from linear, mm -hmm. if you talk to the people that actually designed it, is that we would do a hypertrophy block or some sort of high volume block. Well, what's that going to do? That's going to change your muscle cross-sectional area, you know, change your muscle architecture, maybe change your penation angle, things of that nature. Then the next block in that classic model is to develop strength. Well, what does strength development do? Well, it's got a higher neural component because we're going to activate higher motor, uh, higher threshold motor units. Um, we're going to work on different aspects of the ner nervous system's ability to uh, engage the muscle to create force. And then we're going to do power training. Well, and this is when we optimize the speed of movement and that pattern 
uh, for explosive activities, such as rate of force development, things of that nature. And if we look at this pattern, it, it seems to hold true in many strength and conditioning models. So the classic model was four-week, 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 or, or, or longer. But if you think about some of the things that Isserin's doing, it's just smaller blocks of training. Mm -hmm. So you may do two weeks uh, of hypertrophy or high volume, and then you do three weeks of strength, and then two weeks of power. And fundamentally, what that's doing is, to me, when I look at it, it's the emphasis of the block. It doesn't mean I'm not going to work strength in that power phase. It means it's the minor emphasis. Does that kind of make sense? Oh, yeah. We, we, we spoke about this previously, and, and that is how I have been designing my programs for a long time, and that I always have an emphasis, but I always have retention loads or... Um, secondary emphasis within the program so there'll always usually be a primary emphasis and a secondary emphasis and even sometimes a, a, a tertiary emphasis so i am um, it's kind of like in in a certain way i suppose it's a bit like charlie francis virtual integration where charlie's like you train yep. every you train everything all the time but you you, you either emphasize a, a certain quality or you emphasize two compatible qualities while you re, re, retain or introduce other qualities so that's kind of how I've been doing for a long time. So when, when I read your work, it's quite refreshing and, and just reaffirms that you know what I'm doing seems to be seems to be uh, best practice at, at the current time. Well, yeah, I think that the thing is interesting too. I mean, you know, if we think about the removal of strength, you know, um, in that same book that the, my periodization chapter is in, uh, the one by Ian Jeffries and Jeremy Moody, mm -hmm. uh, there's another chapter in there that's really quite interesting to me, and it's by Martin Evans. The the former head, uh, head strength coach for British Track Cycling. And, and if you look at, you know, what he talks about there, they actually remove strength training uh, from uh, the preparation about a month out of the major competition. And you start to scratch your head. And you go, well, why would they do that? Because strength underpins speed and things of that nature. Well, if you, if you understand track cycling, they start to do bigger gear work, which is basically strength training on the bike. Yeah. So you're changing where you're getting your strength development from. Which, which, which is almost like... Oh, go ahead, the go ahead. strength training in the gym is then phase potentiating the work on the bike. Yeah, which brings up a really great point from our last interview. Um, you said something very profound because uh, I posed the question to you. You know, you see a lot of these. Um, I think I use track athletes as an example who who don't do classical strength training in terms of strength training in the weight yeah. room, but yet. But yet they're like they're so uh, explosive that you know they're obviously they're they're fast in terms of their speed capabilities and they're so explosive. And I kind of pose the question to you like you know is strength really the uh, underpinning factor to um, power and speed that everyone gives credence to it? And um, and I use kind of a gymnast as as a, as another um, analogy. You know, saying they they don't go into the weight room, but yet if they went into the weight room to 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 you know, do a, a movement once they've learned the skill, they can display high levels of strength, and yet they've done no classical strength training. And my question to you was then, you know, is is maximal strength or strength in itself really a foundation for things like power and speed? And you kind of said that it still is, but people are in this narrow mindset that you can only develop strength classically in a weight room where you're like the gymnast and, and the track and field that they, they they are strong. They just got their strength through, through through a different means, so they still have that foundation of strength that did support their their you know their power and speed and, and in terms of the gymnasts their ability to be strong enough to hold certain positions so it was really interesting that you said that, that they just got their strength through a different sort of mechanism and different sort of means mean that yeah, you know, strength, I, strength is still very I would important agree. yeah i agree with that i mean that, that for me that's how i think of it but i would also you know 
always put in the caveat that, you know, probably the most efficient way is the actual weight room, but there are other yeah. ways to do it. Yeah, um, like, yeah, like the book. And the reason I bring that up is because, like, it, it, originally looking at, at those examples, you would say, well, does that not kind of contra- contradict this thing that, you know, strength is the foundation, strength is the foundation, and you were kind of saying it's not because you're thinking that they, they don't have a strength foundation because they didn't do classically true the weight room. Whereas they did, they do have a strength foundation. They just got it through another another means again. Like so, it was just it was a really good. You know, it was something that made me just look at it through a different sort of lens, which was very interesting. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, you think about. It. I mean, if you've ever been on a velodrome, I mean, if you haven't, you should give it a whirl. <laughs> yeah, um, when you put a big gear on and you go around a forty-seven degree bank at speed, it it's the force output is is colossal. Yeah, to maintain speed, so yeah. it's actually a strength training modality i mean and, and if you look at the classic old old school kind of cycling fixed gear kind of riding you put a bigger gear on it's strength training in a circular manner mm. so you know it, it, it's just a different way of doing it but i would argue and i you know i'm i'm pretty confident of this that the most efficient way is the classic strength training way of of weights and and, and if we were to test um athletes that do that on a regular basis, they're definitely going to have you know some advantages, but that doesn't mean it only has to be that way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in, in terms, then maybe just uh, with regards then to more classical strength training, you know, a big conversation that's been had lately among a lot of coaches and researchers and, and fellow peers in the field is this concept of you know specificity and transfer. I suppose Franz Bosch is kind of bring that to the form, you know, in that, you know, Franz kind of shows this continuum of like, which are very, very general exercises. You can overload those quite heavily, like our classical strength moves. But then if you get more towards the specificity end, you can't overload it as much. And it's kind of being able to get a balance between both ends of that continuum that, you know, if you are going to use a lot of overload, you probably want to use general exercises, where if you're going to be specific, you probably want to not have much overload and be as specific as possible towards your, your sporting skills. So in terms of transferability, obviously it changes with training age. Like when you're younger, nearly, you know, any, not nearly, but you get a lot more transfer from what you're doing in your training to your actual sport. Generally, when, when you're of a younger age, that seems to be the trend. And then as you get more experience in terms of your sports mastery within itself and then your training age in terms of your general physical preparedness you seem to need to get more specific so what are your thoughts on, on that and training specificity and then training transfer well i mean from from a strength training perspective yeah um, yeah in terms of like the, I, I don't i'd like to see someone research france's concepts yeah yeah okay uh, no, that's fair enough in a systematic way, that that'd be my first statement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. My second statement would be, what is strength training supposed to do? You know, if we were going to go with the concept that we have to be specific to a sport, then we should probably never be in the weight room ever. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, throw a weighted vest on and go play play football. Um, so fundamentally, I look at it through a different lens. My lens is that what is my goal in the weight room? I'm trying to build strength, general strength from which that I can then build or translate that strength into performance. Yeah. And how I structure my strength training program um, and how I structure my actual other activities helps me take that basic adaptation to the skeletal muscle and build build on it. So, for example, you know, we can look at Jimmy Radcliffe, who in my 
mind is one of the best strength coaches to ever walk the planet. And someone that I hold in very high regard as a practitioner. And we look at some of the things he does. He's very much a guy that does, you know, heavy squatting and, and power cleans and the classics. But then you look at what he does with complexing, where he combines things of heavy strength training activities and then plyometric. Well, what are those things trying to do? Translate those adaptive responses in the weight room to movement that is sports specific. Yeah, that that so, that's kind of that's that's kind of sorry to interrupt. That's kind of getting to the heart of the of the question or getting to the question I'm trying to ask is, you know, how how can we take these general strength exercises where we can get a lot of overload and then make sure that you know, the neural adaptations from a strengths perspective that we're getting from these joint exercises are actually transferring it into our sport-specific activities. Because um, obviously there's more of a there's more of a motor control and skill acquisition in terms of the actual movement specificity of our, of our sport skill. Like, so basically I'm trying to ask is like, you know, are we getting a transfer from the strength and neural adaptation we're getting from our joint exercises into our sport-specific skill? And uh, you know, if you're a beginner, there seems to be a, a high, higher chance of getting that transfer because you're so undertrained. Whereas as you get more advanced, that transfer seems to get smaller and smaller. So it's kind of like, do we go more specific with our training and, and then just have those retention lows in terms of our strength? Or do you still seeking to get more strength is important? Well, I believe that strength is not a static quality and that if you're not training it, you're losing it. Mm-hmm. So it's just like fitness. If I walked up to you and you're a, a fitness coach for a football team and I said, you know, you've done all your fitness training now, all you got to do is go on the pitch, you're going to tell me I'm insane. Yeah, you've got to yeah. do your fitness training to maintain that quality. I'm going to tell you that that's the way strength is. Yeah, I, again, it, it, it goes back quality, to but yeah, it, it goes back to kind of that thing with Ishran. Like, uh, are, are we saying a complete, you know, cessation, or are we are we having some maintenance? I, I would never uh, completely stop training anyone quality it's, it's just more so maybe the emphasis or the time spent in a particular area could it be better spent somewhere else you know like it's kind of that question of how strong is strong enough and then what is probably the most i'd say that you're never strong enough i, I don't <laughs> believe that that's a quantifiable measure so to answer your question good um i think that there's a pendulum that swings yeah, yeah. um that people swing it way too far to the specificity um and they remember um Strength training is not just about creating strength. It's also about creating robustness mm, mm. and making a system that can tolerate the training factors that you're going to do in other Absolutely. places. Yeah. So, you know, people can make the argument, for example, that a sprinter like Lemaitre doesn't do a lot of strength training, but he's fast. We're not going to argue that. He's very fast. One of the fastest men in the world. But he can't replicate that speed consistently because he's not strong enough to undertake the training to maintain that speed profile. Mm. On a, on a regular basis. So, some would argue, though, strength, some would argue that he, he got worse when he introduced a lot of strength training into into. I don't coach him, but I know that his coaches want him to strength train. Yeah. Uh, well, and, I, again, I, so I, it's, it's also about how your program is structured. True, true, very true. You know, there's, good, yeah. there's good strength programs and there's bad strength yeah, We don't know what's going on there. Yeah, um, and so, again, it's about how the factors integrate and sequence. Definitely. And to me, that's about that is the underpinning characteristic that determines if what I do in the gym comes to the pitch yeah, yeah, or to the track or to the velodrome or to wherever. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, sports like powerlifting and weightlifting, it's pretty easy to yeah, as strong as yeah, possible. Yeah. But other sports, it's more difficult. Yeah, And so there's different ways to do it. But I still think if you look at speed, for example, 
strength is a factor that contributes to that. We know that from a ground reaction force perspective. But it's not just absolute strength. It's relative strength. Yeah. And it's also the rate of force development. And elastic so, reactive strength and other things, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think too, when yeah. we think strength, I think automatically people just straight away think of purely concentric type uh, strength expressions, you know, like squatting and deadlifting and bench pressing in terms of lifting the yeah. load, whereas uh, there's so many different types of strength. Again, you know, as you alluded to there, there's, you know, explosive strength, the rate of force film, there's elastic reactive strength, there's many different forms of strength, starting strength, so... Yeah, it's 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 trying to get out of that narrow focus. Even you know, eccentric strength now is getting a big sort of uh, getting getting a lot of yeah, I mean, getting a lot of stuff lately. Yeah, it is, and, and and we've done some research on the accentuated eccentric here at ECU, and we have more planned. And, mm. uh, um, do I think it has its place? Yeah, but where my concern is where it's becoming a replacement. Yeah, and and for me, what I you know, and and I think. You know, my strength and conditioning ideas and my training ideas evolve over time as science evolves. And I look at everything I do as a toolbox, and everything I learn is is, is a tool that goes into that toolbox. Um, for example, is eccentric flywheel training beneficial? Absolutely. The research is pretty interesting. But there's there's not a lot of studies comparing, in, in a good way, you know, a controlled way, uh, flywheel training with traditional training to see if it is in tr- indeed better. You know, there's a lot of studies that are flywheel training, control groups. Well, you get better with the flywheel training. Well, yes, you do. There are a few studies that have compared, but not a whole lot to give us a critical mass of knowledge to make decisions. Um, I'm not ready to throw traditional training out. I still think it's a good core foundation of knowledge. But I look at things as tools that add to the toolbox. Do I use accentuated eccentrics? Absolutely. Would I use flywheel training? Absolutely. Do I still use snatches and cleans and squats? Absolutely. But it's about the recipe and how we put that recipe together and what that individual athlete needs and how it works for them. Mm, absolutely, yeah. Just uh, like finishing up there on, on sort of, you know, strength and and the transfer of strength sport, I suppose like one sort of story that always sticks out is the story of Bonderchuk and, and the hammer throwers in terms of he's like, with the novice hammer throws, when their when their maximal strength went up in the bench press, they threw further. But then with the more advanced throwers, if they spent more time trying to get their bench up any further in terms of their maximal strength, their actual throws started to to be neg- ne- affected negatively. Uh, their throws started to go backward. Basically, there was a negative transfer because uh, th- they were spending expending energy on an area that they weren't efficient in terms of their maximal strength expression to the bench press, where they could have spent more of that energy, you know, doing more sport-specific skill work in terms of throwing the hammer. So that's kind of, I suppose, the question I, I'm kind of maybe sort of getting at there is. Well, I mean, I, I, obviously you have a law of diminishing returns. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, that's what I mean. But, I but mean, again, eventually I, you get to a level of strength where you have to do so much more to elevate it. Yeah. Uh, my argument becomes that you still have to focus on it. You yeah. Know, oh yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. The, I know you know this, but I don't know if everyone knows. Yeah. Because I hear people all the time, you know, in, in the country that I live in now, I have students that come in, you know, once you're strong enough, you don't have to do strength anymore. And what I'm getting at is that, yes, there is some evidence in throwing events. You know, I talked to Larry Judge, who's a famous American throws coach. You know, the more uh, developed you become as a hammer thrower, the more hammer throwing you do, more skills practice. Yeah. Um, but you wouldn't throw out the strength development completely. It's a balancing act finding that individual's 
ratio of throwing to strength development. And I think that's yeah. the critical thing. Yeah. And but you cannot argue that some of these guys are ridiculously strong. Yeah. Uh, um, if we look at throwing. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 Al Fuhrback back in 1972 made the Olympics as a weightlifter and a thrower. Yeah. Ridiculously strong. Yeah. And I, um, I, I, so. I, I think you yeah. you you um you you said a great word there like ratio you know it, it's just that like the ratio of your your training schema is just probably going to change over the course of your career not probably it is going to change in terms again of emphasis. And I suppose, you know, as, as you said, me and, and myself and yourself noticed that, you know, we're not going to cease doing strength training or even it's the same with any training quality. Like we're, going back to again, what I said earlier about with Charlie Francis and his vertical integration was like you, you train everything all the time. You just emphasize one particular quality or, or maybe even two compatible qualities while you retain or introduce the other quality. So you never really want to cease any particular train of any particular quality. Cause Absolutely. Then it probably is going to have a a, a big um, negative impact within your whole training program, particularly when it comes to something oh, yeah. something that's so important, such as strength in in, in, in terms of uh, quality. Uh, yeah. Oh, absolutely! It's, I think too you have to look at it from the perspective of I think you know um, obviously a more developed thrower or athlete is going to need less time in that general prep phase to get up to their their strength levels that they, you know, their maximums. Um, So it it, it goes back to a periodization problem to me of how you structure the interventions to get the physiological and performance outcomes. Yeah, yeah. Another really, on our last interview, another really um, interesting point you brought up, um, I asked you about the interference effect and, and, you know, this idea, you know, the, the classical interference effect that people talk about is strength training versus, you know, endurance training. And that, you know, again, in Ishran's work and even in your book chapter in um, in uh, Ian Jeffries and J- Jerry Moody's book, The Strength Condition for Sports Performance, you have uh, on page uh, 424, you have your um, compatible training factors. And it's like Ishran in that you're saying aerobic endurance and maximum strength training are compa- compatible factors. And that some people may read that and go, well, I, I thought they interfered with another. And then you brought up a great point. Um, and I, I kind of knew this too that obviously it's it's there, there's a certain threshold point where they'll start to interfere with one another in that you know it's the volume and intensity of one of those qualities versus the other that that's going to have an impact on one another. So um, like if you look at Charlie Francis' high low model, he did a ton of low intensity aerobic stuff on his off days with athletes who were predominantly power strength athletes, you know the track and field athletes. So they did a, a lot of high level maximal output a lactic work on their high days and low level aerobic work on on their recovery days and the fact that they were at either end of those extremes meant that they didn't you know they didn't interfere with one another but you also brought up a great point in that people weren't taking into consideration probably the fatigue factor so if you let's say we're doing a lot of strength training and you introduce a ton of aerobics so it, it might necessarily even be that it's the aerobic interference with the strength it could be the fatigue factor and then, then that's starting to lead to some decays in strength so Maybe you just want to touch on that, like the interference effect, and maybe you know there's a certain threshold there, and the fatigue factor. Maybe is, is what's well, I mean, contributing there's to that. Good work out there on the interference effect, and I don't think we can discount it completely. I think yeah. it depends on what your outcome goal is. Yeah. And you know, we know if you want to be the strongest powerlifter or the strongest weightlifter, a lot of cardiovascular or endurance training is probably not going to be beneficial for you. Yeah. But when we start looking at team sports, we're looking at a balancing act between 
you know, the capacities that we need to do repetitive skills and also the strength and things of that nature. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So from a perspective of, of the interference effect, there's some really nice work out there about how you could uh, space training in a day. I mean, Duncan yeah, French has yeah. done a little bit in this area where, you know, if you had more than six hours uh, between your strength and endurance training, it reduces the interfe interference effect. I don't know if it would ever completely remove the interference effect. Yeah. There will still be some interference effect. And there's a good meta-analysis uh, that was published in JSCR that shows that the more aerobic training you do, the more the interference effect as far as strength goes and power. And it's probably a compounding fatigue factor issue, in my opinion. But it could also be a physiological adaptation response as well. Mm -hmm. uh, we can't discount that the you know, the cell signaling from aerobic activity is slightly different from it, from anaerobic activity um, as far as the outcome of what the body's trying to make itself to. Yeah, yeah. So if I'm trying to improve my maximal aerobic capacity as an endurance runner, you know, I mean, Benita Machika and Bosquet had a wonderful meta-analysis come out recently that strength training improves endurance performance. Mm -hmm. So does strength training interfere with aerobic training? Not if structured correctly. It's going to actually improve it. And Ronstead's done tons of work on cycling and strength training and performance. Um, so from that perspective, I think that it probably, you know, you might have a limited interference effect. Where I think the interference effect becomes more problematic becomes when you're trying to get absolute maximal speed and maximal strength. Yeah. yeah. You know, if I'm trying to run as fast as I can, the more aerobic work I do, potentially I could, could cause problems there. Mm -hmm. um, if I'm trying to lift you know, as a weightlifter, I'm trying to snatch or clean the most weight possible, you know, a lot of aerobic work will mute that gain, yeah, um, yeah. It, it, especially in the leg strength kind of perspective. And is it a cumulative fatigue process or is it a change in adaptive responses? It, it's hard to say. It's, pro it's probably both more so. But again, I suppose the, the main point that I, I would try and get across is that, you know, we have to take into consideration that the volumes and intensities of, so let's oh, yeah. just say let's just say if, if it was someone who, who was doing you know who was doing a lot of strength training or, or are more skewed to be more of a strength power athlete and they start to introduce some uh, aerobic endurance work into their training they just would need to be careful with the volumes and intensity of aerobic work because again you go back to Charlie Francis model I mean you know Ben Johnson up until Usain Bolt was like the fastest human being of all time okay you know drugs aside and all that but he was still very very fast and, and he did a ton of low intensity aerobic work on a on a on a micro cycle basis um so but again it was because it was prescribed with such low intensities and the volume was controlled for that it, it had very little effect on his but there is one confounding factor with that though go ahead you can't discount what the drugs would have done for recovery true true yeah no, anabolic true. steroids would have allowed him to do more training volume and recover faster so you that's one of those gray areas in in, in an applied model like that yeah. is did the drugs allow him because we know he tested positive in the Seoul Olympics so it's not saying anything that's not known <laughs> did the drugs allow him to train in that model and optimize performance yeah that's the bigger question that you have to ask yourself yeah it is a great example of a situation where it did work but your confounding factor that makes it more difficult to just to, yeah, extrapolate so, yeah. is we know that they took drugs it's in Charlie's book speed trap and, and they took different kinds of drugs to speed recovery and enhance performance. Yeah, yeah. So in those parallel approach models, one of the, you know, if you look at the classic parallel approach models uh, that were quite famous in the Soviet Union at one point, 
to increase your training tolerance or your training capacity for multilateral training, you had to take drugs to raise your ceiling. Mm -hmm. So for me, while I'm a huge fan of Charlie's work, and I and I, I read his work quite frequently just to refresh myself, that is always a question for me that I have to think about when I start to work with my own athletes. Yeah. No, no, big, big time, man. Big time. It's just... It's a, it's a, well, I suppose maybe using Charlie and Ben there might have been the, the best example because, again, of that, the steroid involvement. But I suppose it's just that when oftentimes you can see beginning coaches maybe read some literature and, and they'll see something like Isra's chart or even your chart here in, in this book again by Ian Jeffries and Jeremy Moody where it's like, you know, uh, strength and um, aerobic endurance are compatible qualities. And then they go, well, I thought strength and endurance conflict is like, well, there, there's going to be a certain threshold that, so again, let's just say if you're taking someone who is more skewed towards strength and they start to introduce aerobic training, if that aerobic training becomes uh, gets to a stage where they do a lot of volume of it and a lot of intensity of that uh, aerobic training, then it can start to have detrimental impacts on the strength. But if it's from an intensity and volume standpoint, if it's kept in such a range that it, you know it'll have the least amount of interference, they can be quite compatible. Like they can be, they they can go. Very well, well, I mean, it depends on what you're looking at. And I mean, if this is, you know, my wife is a strength coach, and you know, when people ask her questions, her famous answer is, "It depends." depends yeah. Well, that's always this already always and, the answer, yeah. And and I think that's a great answer, but I, I have to also be with this this interference effect phenomenon. If I look at it from a perspective of if I'm a strength, if I'm a powerlifter and I start doing aerobic work, you will have an interference effect. Yeah. There's no doubt in my mind you'll yeah. have an interference. Like I suppose um, you, you you do need to even a small amount of aerobic yeah. work. We see it in weightlifting. We yeah. see a reduction in power output um, if they go and add aerobic work in. Mm. So what I think maybe a better way of looking at it is it's what is your end product that you're trying to accomplish. So is endurance and strength compatible? Yes, if you're trying to maximize endurance work. Yeah, and I think that may be a misinterpretation by some people. Now. Could it be compatible with, with strength work in a non-sport where someone's end product is maximal absolute strength? Potentially. But the training loads have to be um, modulated and systematically integrated. So if you look at some of the classic work where uh, strength training was shown to not improve endurance performance, Oftentimes, it was the addition of strength training on top of a large volume of aerobic training yeah, or yeah. endurance training. It's about the integration. So in some, most of the studies that are really good that show a benefit is when they reduce a small portion of the aerobic work and replace it with strength training. So for me, what I'm looking at is that every athlete has a ceiling, ceiling tolerance for their training. Mm -hmm. And when you're a young athlete, you can do multilateral training and you can get quite good. Yeah. As you become more de uh, developed, you get closer to your training tolerance level. And this is where those sequential models become more beneficial because it allows you more saturation of that training factor. And, and I think that's the, the catch here is that if we have too many training factors and they're somewhat incompatible, we can overload the system and, and the athlete can't adapt or recover from it. And then we get a huge interference effect. But I really believe that if we did, if you do endurance work, you will not be able to maximize strength I, I in the classic sense. Yeah, it doesn't mean yeah. you're not going to be strong. Yeah. It just means you're not going to maximize strength. 
No, absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, again, at the, at the, if we look at a, a, a continuum scale, I mean, if you have maximal strength at one end and you know maximal endurance at the other end, of course they're going to conflict. And again, in, for a field-based athlete, they're probably somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. I guess I suppose you need to be sort of we need to maybe clarify what do we mean when we say aerobic work or endurance work. So like I know yeah. I know for instance one thing that I think can definitely be beneficial to even like a powerlifter or an Olympic lifter is maybe some like low level cardiac output like it's like 120 150 beats per minute and the reason for that is I know with some powerlifters they can actually get like um, left ventricle concentric hypertrophy which can become a pathological issue with their heart later in life and by doing some like cardiac output 120 150 work it's it's so so low intensity like it's really really low like i mean it's it's uh, so like to say that i'd like to see the research on that yeah, yeah no, I just, i'm not sure if i agree yeah i like well, i mean in terms of and what i mean by low intensity is in terms of um physical actual exertion because it, it needs to be very low intensity for the left ventricle to fill with blood and, and stretch the wall but the, I, I have heard of instances of that in that because of the high blood pressures of, of being under heavy loads that you can get this concentric hypertrophy of, of the left ventricle which can be become a pathological issue whereas when you get that venous blood return from something that's of a more of a, an endurance or aerobic nature personally I'd like to see the research on it I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical yeah, yeah, that, that's fair. That you that you would need to do aerobic work um, to actually um, offset that. Yeah, yeah. One of the reasons I would be skeptical is that we could do higher volume resistance training and and get an aerobic effect. Well, the, the I, now again, this is just what I've heard. That the, the reason why that that it's it's hypothesized that that wouldn't work as well is because. If your heart rate gets up too high, the heart starts to beat too fast, and you're not getting the optimal amount of venous return into the left ventricle to stretch it. So you want this. Well, I mean, I think you have to really you have to think about this from a. There's a difference between a pathological hypertrophy of the left ventricular ventricle, yeah. ventricle, and a difference between an adaptive ventricular response. Yeah. Well, so, and so I, I've heard that. You know, I, I'm not so sure that that's the fact. And, and the thing you have to also consider is that who are we looking at? Are we looking at athletes that use anabolics, or are we looking at athletes who don't? Mm, that's a good point there with the anabolics again. Yeah. Well, I've heard that because too. again, we know that, for example, there's some wonderful work on the long-term negative effects on the intercalated discs in the heart. Uh, with anabolic use that doesn't go away even 10 years after you stop using it. Interesting. So, to me, I, I'm not I, I'm I'm not sold on aerobic work for a, a large volume of it for people in, in those extreme strength power sports. Now, yeah. I, I'm talking extreme. Yeah, me like too. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now, for other sports like American football, where it's a strength power activity, but you still have to have fitness. You know, you still have to have some. Uh, cardiovascular adaptations in order to engage in those activities. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, I think it really depends on what your output is. And I, I think for me, that's what it always comes down to. And then, again, it comes back to the training program and how we can work within the tolerance levels mm. of that athlete's training ability. So, you know, obviously, as we become more trained, our training tolerance goes up, but we can handle more training load. Yeah, yeah. No, this, uh, I mean, and, like, and, like, 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 I, I, for the most part, I think for yeah everything there I'm I'm in complete agreement with. I would never recommend. So if someone came to me and said I want to get it as strong as humanly possible. I'm like, well, we're going to do a ton of aerobic training as well. I would, you know, 
like clearly, clearly, like I'm not saying that. And clearly, you're not saying that either. It's, it's. I oh su- yeah, absolutely. I, su- I suppose it's it's just kind of, it's known. It's it's trying to get this idea across that to a certain point, they like for maybe someone who's not trying to maximize absolute strength or not who's not trying to maximize absolute aerobic or endurance capabilities yeah. that there is a certain well, point I mean, where, think where about it this way there's some great work that ronstad's done um looking at cyclists and strength training and they're doing road cycling and they've gotten stronger in response to adding or integrating strength training into their aerobic ac- activity they got stronger so there wasn't an interference effect yeah had an improvement in their cycling performance and no negative change to their vo2 yeah so, or aerobic capacity. So, is the interference effect strong there? No. But it, again, it comes down to how the recipe is put together. Very good, Jim. Very good. And ha- have you ever seen it go the other way, though, at all, where, where someone was strong, not a strength athlete now, but just someone who was generally strong and introduced some aerobic work and, and it was the same in terms of there wasn't too much interference effect? Only in untrained people. Okay. Okay, and I'm just wondering, too. Yeah. Basically, from my experience and, and my interpretation of liter- literature, the greater the volume of aerobic training that you add into the program, the harder it is to get strong. Yeah, that's that that that, you, that basically encapsulates the exact point I'm trying to get. So, like, so strength and and aerobic are compatible up to a certain point, but then if there's too much, particularly if there's too much aerobic work done, that's definitely going to have a huge detriment on, on strength capabilities more so than if you did, if you introduce strength. But it also, I think it's a bigger picture than just too much aerobic work. It's the type of aerobic work. Yeah, exactly. Again, because it goes back to the, the more ground-based it is, the more interference we see. Yeah, yeah. And there's a wonderful meta-analysis on that. Yeah. Cycling actually doesn't produce as much interference because riding a bike on a gear yeah. actually is a form of strength training. Yeah. Plus, yeah, and there's, it's all concentric. There's less eccentric damage. Probably, it probably doesn't cause the same sort of fatigue as a ton, a ton of volume match, maybe running-wise as well. So, yeah, yeah. No, like again, it's it, it's it's it, the only reason I've harped on about this so much is again because I often get sort of more beginner coaches who get very confused with this concept. They might again they read Ishran's work or even the table that you had there, and it says, well, they say strength and aerobic here are compatible qualities. Like, okay, right, well. We have to put context towards this now, and again, you know, the answer is it depends again on the context. You know, we're talking about a, you know, a power. Yeah, but I think I think too. Yeah, I, I think you're right there in, in one aspect of the sense that remember when we're working with an athlete who's working for a sport that requires multiple physical characteristics. That's a very different question. It's a very different. That's a very idea. different scenario. So we have to figure out how much of these things we need to do. Yeah, and you know. You know, one of the things that Professor Stone and I talk about a lot, and, and and this is one that I think is important, and it relates back to periodization again, because to me, again, this is all a periodization problem, is that periodization is to get the maximum gain for the minimum input. Yeah. Not the maximum gain for the maximum input. So we're trying to find the optimal recipe to give you what you need to maximize performance. And, phys- and if we're maximizing performance, we have to maximize physiological adaptation. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, just, just a question there again on phase potentiation in terms of, you know, so the classical sort of strength and power model is this hypertrophy block followed by strength block followed by a power block. 
I've often been posed the question from a bodybuilder, would you ever do a general strength block before, or, you know, general strength or maximum strength block before hypertrophy block with the idea of being able to recruit more motor units, therefore going into your hypertrophy block, you may be able to cause more muscular damage? Well, I think it's how you look at the concept or the problem. Um, for me, I look at it this way. What I'm using that, you know, I may come out of a transition phase and do a, you know, strength repetition to get, you know, used to training again. But what I'm trying to do with that strength endurance or hypertrophy block is to build fitness, mm. to be able to tolerate those heavier loads. Mm. Now, that's the classic mindset. Now, I know Poliquin in the past has talked about cycling, you know, two weeks of hypertrophy, two weeks of strength back to hypertrophy and, and rotating in that fashion. Um, but that's a different uh, scenario. Um, but, you know, I, it depends. I, I, again, that question. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, uh, it just depends. Yeah. So something we, we spoke about on the last podcast, and I'd love maybe to touch on again. We didn't get a chance to get into too much. Was um, Mike Isertel brought a book out in 2015, uh, Scientific Principles of Strength Training, and in that he had a, a hierarchy. Now, and again, I I don't want to speak for Mike, and I'm sure that if he was here on the podcast, you know, he he give a lot more context to it. But for for strength training, anyway, he had this hierarchy. And it went in an order of specificity, overload, fatigue management, stimulus, recovery, adaptation, variation, phase substantiation, and individuality. If, if you were to put together a, a hierarchy for strength developments in terms of the training principles, how might you um, structure the hierarchy? Well, I'd have to think about that. I mean, that would be something. I'd, I'd have to see what Isertel has published. I, I mean, I haven't seen it. Yeah. I, I don't have any of his, his okay. stuff. I mean, he was one of Stone's students. As well, I know yeah. him when he was a PhD student. I mean, obviously, to transfer anything from, you know, the weight room to to the field of of play, um, we obviously have to have you know specificity. We have to definitely overload the system to get it to adapt. Um, but to really get overload, we have to have some form of variation. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, in order to adapt, we have to have recovery. Yeah. So you know, you know that you know adaptation recovery kind of paradigm. Um, you know, for me, I think. One of the things that I'm pretty solid on is that, you know, we have to overload the system, and, and I think it, it has to be smart overload. And there's a time to be non-specific, and there's a time to be specific. And um, I think, I actually think the pendulum has swung too far towards specificity. Yeah. Um, you know, I see it all the time here, at, at, you know, at, with some of the students that I work with, that they want it to be so specific that they forget that we're building underlying capacities that we build from. So, you know, for me, I think those are all part of the recipe, but I'm not so sure if I could hierarchical put it in a hierarchy because I don't think it truly is a hierarchy. I think it's integrated more like a Venn diagram. Mm, mm, mm. Well, that's good. That's good to hear. Yeah, it's very good to hear. Um, yeah. Another area we, we spoke on, and I suppose love to, and it kind of gets a bit into the training, into the training compatibility or the compatibility of certain qualities, was uh, energy system development, which we, we touched on, and this sort of concept of you know okay we have our three energy systems, we have our alactic system, also known as our ATP PCR system, our lactic system or glycolytic system, our aerobic system, and and in Ishran's work he he. And again, it's it's good to get your point, your your thoughts on this. He would say that a lactic and lactic work aren't very compatible 
Um, and I believe that you wouldn't fully agree with that. And in your chart, actually, it's slightly different to Ishran's work where you have like maximal strength training paired up with some anaerobic endurance type work. So do, 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 have you seen anything that, that shows that a lot of lactic work can actually interfere with alactic work? Or maybe it's just a fatigue thing again that we kind of spoke about with strength and endurance work. But what, what, are, you, what, what are your cons, your, your thoughts there on, uh, on energy systems and, and training? I don't think there's any research that's directly yeah. looked at that. I mean, because everything works together at the same time. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, that's um, true. Again, it's about fatigue and, and metabolic fatigue. So it's probably, you know, if we think about it in the peripheral governor model, concept and, and, and then think about it in the central governor and the complex models of fatigue. It's all about fatigue management. Yeah. And so if I'm doing a lot of, you know, I, I don't actually like lactate, a lactate terminology. Um, when I look at it, you know, from the perspective, if we're in glycolytic metabolism, we're breaking down carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. And if we're moving really quickly, we can make lactate, but we're making lactate right now. You know, you and I are talking here, making lactate. We're just buffering it. Yeah. Um, so what's happening is we're overriding the system by making it go very quickly that we can't buffer that lactate. So the more of that work we do, the more fatiguing it becomes. Um, but we would have had to come through the ATP PC system to get there anyway. Mm -hmm. So I, I struggle with those terminologies because just because I do a sprint, you know, like you know, a ten-second sprint, it's predominantly ATP PC. Or, or alactic. Um, unless I rest completely, I'm eventually going to go into to, you know, glycolytic energy supply. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, a classic sprint model would be if I sprint all out, I'd wait five to ten minutes and then sprint again. Then I'm purely in that that zone or that that, that lane, so to speak. But that's very specific to that sport. Yeah, and I suppose the question then I'd pose then is that, like, you see a lot of field-based sports or coaches involved in field-based sports. So, you know, American football obviously would be one you're familiar with. Then there's, in, in my realm, there's Gaelic games, soccer, rugby, I suppose Australian rules football, then where you are now in, in Perth. And uh, I'm not, I suppose I'm not too sure how, 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 modern times are in terms of condition but there was there for a while a big emphasis on a lot of lactic kind of based conditioning and um, because people sort of got this mindset that you know the game is intermittent and there's and there's loads of lactate uh production in it and therefore we need to do a lot of this lactate based work where time motion analysis would show that it's more so the alactic aerobic systems that are that are being taxed and that then a lot of people would say that if you do a lot, a lot of lactic work, it can actually diminish the capabilities of your alactic system. So have you, have you seen anything on that, or what are your thoughts on that? I mean, for me, <coughs> excuse me. Yeah, okay. When I look at it, I you know, for me, I'm I try I like to train off of percentages of VVO2 or okay. or uh, IFT, intermittent fitness, like Martin Boucher's model, mm. and then you can get central or peripheral adaptation. Nice. Um, but when I start to think about this, you know, conceptually, um, are you training for recovery or are you training for performance? I want to train for performance. So, you know, yes, in a sport like AFL, you may have this large um, kilometers of distance that you cover and your GPS says, you know, all these things that you're cruising at low speed. Um, 
but are those the influential points in the actual game? Mm-hmm. You know, same with soccer. <clears throat> so I'm probably more in the mindset of doing more of the, you know, intermittent fitness, high velocity, chain, you know, work around the VBO2 and anaerobic speed reserve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah the anaerobic speed reserve is, is, is definitely... Is definitely you know something that is that is important without without question. Have you ever uh, read any of Joel Jameson's work, um, Greg? Uh, can you say that again? I didn't hear you. Have you ever read any of Joel Jameson's work, Joel, Joel Jameson? Nah. I mean, right now for me, what I'm working in mainly is accentuated eccentrics. Yeah. Um, velocity-based training. Um, I'm doing a bit. I have a bit of interest in hypertrophy and and, and things of that nature and. I've been doing a lot of things, looking, uh, reading per se around monitoring and yeah. and and um, high intensity interval work, but I haven't I haven't read his work. No, I was just wondering. Uh, one or two more, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. But I know in the emails you said um, you were doing some work on cluster training, and you just mentioned their velocity based on some eccentric or accentuated eccentrics. Could you maybe just uh, fill us in on what sort of research you've been doing there? Oh, I mean, we're right now we're just looking at different aspects of accentuated eccentric, and you can see some of the work that Simon uh, Walker out of Uvascula has published, and that's kind of a good representation of of what we've been doing from the accentuated eccentric. The velocity stuff is very much depicted in, in Harry Banyard's work. Um, as far as cluster sets go, I mean, we the last couple of years we've been playing with the idea of large volume uh, cluster sets, uh, sets of twelve total reps, and, and, wow. and what we're looking at there is, can we lift a heavier load, get greater time under tension, and maybe potentially get a blended um, kind of response in the sense that would we get a good time under tension, good stimulus for hypertrophy, yet could we maintain velocity of movement? Mm. So really, for me, cluster sets are really related to the velocity of movement, mm-hmm. and you know where could we use these and what can we do with them? I mean... I think one of the things that my former doctoral student, James Tufano, was looking at was this this idea that we could do these different structures of a cluster set to mitigate the, the training outcome. So if I wanted to be more fatiguing and I was going to do 12 repetitions, I could do three groupings of four, three clusters of four. If I wanted to really be more velocity power based in that paradigm, I would do two reps. Uh, six clusters of two in that total 12 repetition set scheme. So playing with that structure a little bit to kind of come up with different ways to stimulate uh, adaptive responses. Now, what we would love to do is go down the route of looking at self-signaling to see what happens from those different models and see how they relate to, for example, mTOR or AMPK. Yeah, I think in one of your cluster papers, uh, it was interesting. You looked at a, uh, I think it was a six, or, it was like in around a six RM load or, or a heavy load done for six reps, and one was done for three doubles in a cluster format, and one was just done as a straight set of six. And one of the conclusions from it was that the straight set of six seemed to be actually better for hypertrophy, whereas the the three doubles seemed to have a better sort of strength and, and neural adaptation component because it kept velocity up and allowed allowed them. Um, yeah, again, allowed for the velocity of the load to, to stay more consistent throughout the, the entire six reps when they were broken into these three doubles. Is that still kind of currently what you're seeing, or, or um, is? Well, for me, you know, for me, I don't actually use clusters for strength development. I don't think that 
probably is the best one. Oh. Uh, we haven't looked at it from a training study perspective. Okay. Um, we tend to, I tend to use it with power exercises. Okay. Um, so for me, I like to use it with the power clean, pulling motions, things like that. Um, where my doctoral student and I went was we were looking at the squat because we were thinking, okay, could we get a greater density of training in a shorter amount of time yeah, yeah. by being able to lift a heavier load more times? Yeah. And then would that stimulate a greater hypertrophic stimulus? So it's interesting. I mean, I know Christian Thibodeau from Canada talks about cluster sets for uh, hypertrophy. Yeah. And yeah, you know, exactly. it's something we're looking at. Um, I think we need to do a training study. I, I was really quite disappointed that my former student didn't do the training study that he had planned. Uh, because I think that's really the next logical step in his model. Um, it wasn't. It wasn't investigated to see. Do you get more hypertrophy after using that? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, actually I know Christian very well, and yeah, he, he would be a big proponent of using clusters for for building strength and size. So that's it's. Um, yeah. I'd be very interested to see more more research come out on it for sure. Craig, that that's pretty much all I have today. And um, just wrapping up there, is there any? Um, is there any resources there lately that you've been looking into that you might uh, you might recommend to listeners? Any good books you've been reading? Any podcasts, webinars, seminars? Anything that you'd recommend? Uh, to I, I think definitely the uh, the new IGSPP special edition on um, monitoring, which is open access, is a good thing to look at. Um, you know, I haven't gotten my hands on um, Mike McGuigan's new uh, monitoring book yet. Uh, it's it, it looks like it's going to be pretty good. And I think the NSCA's power text is going to be excellent. Um, you know, I wrote a chapter in periodization and have some newer ideas in there that are pretty interesting. And yeah. um, it's got a good host of authors, uh, how to maximize power development. Great, great stuff. Yeah, really, really good. And finally, any any parting advice for any listeners, any of the young coaches or wannabe researchers or PhD candidates, any advice you'd like to share? Uh, I mean, as far as PhD goes, I think you have to keep a scientific mind and you have to kind of think about questions. You try to answer questions and, and, and I think that's the important thing. Um, coaches, I think you just have to keep learning and you have to keep adapting. And, um, but I think for scientists, we got to talk to coaches more and get coaches' opinions. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm lucky. Uh, my wife is a coach and, and she gives me input about what the problems are that she experiences as a coach and then me as a scientist I try to find solutions so I think that partnership with coaches and, and scientists is important yeah yeah I remember I asked Mike Stone when he was on the podcast like uh, you know who's who's been one of your biggest influences and he was like saying obviously Megan and he was just I was just saying that the dinner conversations must be great because they're they're always just like bouncing ideas off one another so it's just a, a continual like factory of just yeah. concepts and ideas and hypothesis and whatnot so i'd say it's pretty similar to you and your wife oh yeah that's really it's crazy Very though. uh dr half if, if somebody wanted to reach out and, and connect with you where where would be the best place to go uh you could i i'm on twitter at doc hoff um you can find me at the nsca conferences or you could just email me via ESECU. Great stuff, great stuff. So, uh, Greg, just stay, stay on for just another sec while I wrap up the podcast. I really appreciate it. It was, it was excellent. Really, really great stuff. So, guys, what an absolute honor it was, again, to have Dr. Gregory Half on again. Uh, really appreciate it. Obviously, the first time we, we our interview, our first interview was just brilliant in terms of information, but I was just so disappointed to have some of the audio turned out. So it was nice to 
have him back on, touch on some new areas, and, and even go over some of the previous topics we had in the last show. So um, definitely a, a better sound quality today. So for everyone listening, uh, guys, I will talk to you all soon. Please keep sharing out the podcast on social media. So take care, be well, guys, and stay strong. Thank you.